Well, good afternoon. I count it a privilege every time um, the elders give me the opportunity to bring the Lord's Word to the Lord's people on the Lord's Day, and I pray that it's a blessing to you. I've determined to go through the epistle of 1 John uh, every time that I get the opportunity to preach, and so it'll probably be a long process. Uh, This morning, if you want to grab your copy of the Scriptures or open your Bible app, We'll do our reading uh, from 1 John, <clears throat> but I'm going to have a little bit longer introduction maybe this time than every subsequent time because I'll be setting the groundwork for the background of the book itself, as well as an introduction uh, to today's message. So before we get to our reading, uh, just a little bit of a background about the book. The Apostle John, the disciple John, uh, the youngest of the twelve followed Christ around, and now we don't have the exact date of when he wrote this epistle, but we know that he's advanced in years. We know that some time has gone by, they believe around 60 years, six decades, um, this disciple turned apostle has had to to contemplate what it was that, what it was like, what what it means to have learned from God incarnate. He's grown and he's matured, and he is now a father in the faith to many, and The church in the first century, coming to the end of the first century, uh, is in a bit of crisis, at least from some areas. There are false teachers, there's false teaching that have come in immediately, and they've taken root. I was amazed as I went through some of the commentaries on the the background, the setting of this epistle, um, of the word um, viral teachings, viral heresies that was used over and over. That paints a, a wonderful picture of, of the severity of false teaching, right? It's like a virus that comes in, and it's almost unnoticed, but when it begins to spread, it produces sickness. It produces death. And here we have the last remaining apostle. All his other apostles, the other disciples, have passed on. He's advanced in age. He's the last one to have followed Christ on earth as a direct disciple, one of the inner circle members. And he's writing to this church in Asia Minor. He's writing to them out of a a paternal love, uh, the way that a father would write to his adult child and tell them, plead with them to to flee from error and to continue in the faith. Um, In the same vein that uh, Moses, when he wrote the book of Deuteronomy, the retelling of the law before um, the, the rebellious generation that was in the wilderness was going to actually finally make it 40 years late into the promised land, Moses, like a father, instructs his children to keep their eyes on Yahweh. Here we have John instructing this church to keep their eyes on Christ. One of the false teachings that had crept in to the early church was a teaching, a heresy that we call Gnosticism, coming from the Greek word knowledge. There's going to be a few Greek words here, and I've heard enough sermons to know that there's a myriad of different pronunciations, so I just picked one that I've heard that I liked. But Gnosticism, or secret knowledge, uh, was a teaching that had begun to infiltrate the church. Uh, this secret knowledge wasn't just um, a, a knowledge that was hidden, but it was a, a superior, almost supernatural knowledge that these teachers claimed to have. They placed, they elevated their teachings, their special knowledge, it was uh, higher than that of, of Scripture itself. So they were the only people that could know these things. And as it's been stated before many, many times, um, there really are no new heresies. 
There, there's nothing new under the sun. There's a recycling through the centuries of the same heresies. So we won't get into it deeply, but just as a, an example of, of the way Gnosticism is still with us, um, is there's a, a preacher that's called, uh, his name is Vodibach, and many of you have heard of him. He's kind of coined the term ethnic Gnosticism. And though it's used often in a, in a political sense or in a in a, a secular sense, there is a form of it that's crept into the church even now that says essentially this, you have to have a certain ethnic background to understand uh, the justice of God so that your, even a received inherited knowledge that comes through your DNA. And without that, there is a certain understanding of God that you, you just can't have without this special knowledge. Of course, we understand that to be an error and along the, the coattails of that um, comes all, the, all other manner of intersectionality, um, the gay Christian movement, not understanding their plight unless you've walked in their shoes. We recognize uh, those errors, and at this time, this is kind of the introduction of this heresy, this secret knowledge that these people have, uh, these false teachers. Uh, one of the children of these false teachings would be called uh, dualism. It taught that Essentially, spiritual things were good, and physical things were bad. Anything physical was sinful and bad. Um, No doubt, certain uh, desires God has given us can be taken to a sinful place. They can be uh, brought to an idolatrous level. But we understand that God's given us taste buds. He's given us uh, ears to enjoy music. He's given us certain desires that in their proper place are wonderful. But this dualistic teaching uh, was wrong, and it, and it, it, made, uh, it called things bad that God did not call bad, and that was, was an error that they were teaching. In, in this uh, teaching that they had, they attributed deity to Jesus, but they denied his humanity. If everything flesh is bad, therefore, if Jesus is God, he could not be flesh. That was their teaching. So I don't want to lose anybody. That's wrong. But that was their teaching. If Jesus was God, he therefore could not be flesh. There's even some ideas that as he walked around on earth, he, he floated or hovered a millimeter above the earth because the earth itself was material and therefore bad. Um, there was no end to the, the, the error that they began to fall into. In addition, they claimed special hidden knowledge. The Gnostics denying Christ's physical body stated that Jesus only seemed real and began teaching this heresy. We call that docetism, from the Greek, the Greek word to appear. So he appeared, Jesus appeared uh, fleshly. He, he appeared real, but he couldn't have been, as it was their uh, assumption there, their teaching. This aberrant, unbiblical belief had dire consequences, as all false, false doctrine does. People who followed their teaching fell into two camps, so this false teaching. Two camps. Those who thought the body should be treated harshly because it was evil. So everything flesh, bad. Flagellation, bad. Um, that's called asceticism. And there were those who taught that sin had no effect on a person's soul. And I couldn't find a term to that for that, so we'll call that ridiculous. The false teachers who opposed John, they fell more numerous into the latter camp there. And that is the backdrop to which John writes this letter. John emphasizes, and we'll get into this today, the need for Christians to obey God's law. Now, 
don't get things, uh, the cart before the horse, so to speak. We are justified fully apart from works of the law in ourselves through Jesus Christ. There is no good works that a sinner can perform to receive justification that has been fully accomplished in the, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what, what John is going to be saying as we get into this book, essentially, is he's going to define loving God, truly loving God, by obedience to his commands. So if you want to demonstrate true love to God, you're going to love and obey his commands. Not to, to gain approval from the Father, but because you have been approved already, and God's commands, his character, and his nature are a natural outpouring, a natural outworking of his very personality and character. Therefore, the, re- the redeemed, regenerate believer loves the law of God imperfectly. We still have our flesh, but they love the law of God because it is an essence of God himself. It is an outworking of who he is. So with that, again, that's an extended uh, introduction that will, will last. I'll reference you back to that in subsequent messages over the book. But that is the backdrop to which we are going to jump into uh, 1 John chapter 1 here. I'll be reading the first four verses. I am reading from the ESV. Hear the words of the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our own hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete, walking in the light. Our Lord and our God, O Father, I pray now, Father, that you exalt your Son, that you teach us, all of the things that John has written to us, Father, that we'd understand rightly a biblical theology of the person of Jesus Christ, Father. Expand our understanding, apply it to our lives, Father. Even give us a dose of love for your holy commandments, Father. It is true love of you. Come now, pour out your spirit. Guide me as I walk through the word, Father, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I have three points for you this morning. I'll go through them once, then again as we get to them. The first one is, that which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. The second point, John's emphasis on a physical Jesus. John's emphasis on a physical Jesus. And then the third point, and this is where we're going here. It's all leading up to this complete joy in fellowship with Christ. Complete joy in fellowship with Christ. This is all under the heading, all of these points, of a biblical view of Jesus Christ. Um, The first four verses of 1 John deal with that, a biblical view of Jesus Christ. And then for a chapter and a half after that, it gets into a biblical view of sin 
But that's where he starts off here. So, that which was from the beginning. The, the Logos eternal. John immediately opens this epistle by reckoning back to the first lines of his gospel. In the beginning. Which itself ties back to the very first verses in Genesis. We see in the beginning of our creation week, our triune God. Our triune God was there. And the crowning jewel of his creation was when God said, let us make man in our image. In the garden, man enjoyed perfect fellowship with God. And that perfect fellowship brought fullness of joy. There was no need for a letter to be written about how to have the fullness of joy because sin had not yet entered the picture and man walked with God in perfect joy that is a result of that fellowship, man with God. This joy was unencumbered by the grief and shame which sin brought, which sin still brings. When sin entered the picture, this perfect joy was destroyed because the source of joy, man's fellowship with God, was destroyed. However, the sovereign plan of God was mentioned just a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 3. God proclaimed that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent will bruise his heel. We call that the proto-evangelium. This gospel, in its infancy, still uh, not brought to full understanding, but mentioned here, uh, would be believed and looked forward to by all the Old Testament, believe, Old Testament believers. Okay? Yet it would not be understood fully, even as the disciples themselves were slow to grasp that the Messiah they followed and trusted in was in fact God incarnate. So turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, this is Jesus with the disciples, they looked to him when they, them in the boat, and just as he was, and other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. They understood. They followed. They knew this was the Messiah. But what, what did that mean? They didn't get it. They didn't grasp it. Often we don't. They, this idea that the infinite God who spoke the universe in existence could be physically with them in the body of a man was too far outside their understanding. But John, in, in his epistle that he's writing to us, wants us to understand from the beginning here that Jesus Christ physically was a man. He was there in the boat with them. He didn't understand at this time. But six decades or so later, 
he gets this point and he's writing to this church. And the first point he wants to make to them in the face of these heresies and false teachings is God, the God-man, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man was physically there. It is a clear, it's clear at least at this point that the disciples don't understand uh, what, we, what we would call the hypostatic union, the combination of divine and human nature in a single person. The God that was from the beginning now standing in the boat with them was incomprehensible, but a lack of understanding is different from a denial. So I want to contrast that. Not understanding, not grasping fully, is different than a denial. So their lack of understanding, they needed more faith. That Jesus rebukes them for not having enough faith. But that's a far cry from the, the Gnostics who were, were denying that reality and teaching error. Now the same John who didn't understand in the boat writes to these, quote, little ones, warning them of those who deny this truth that brings us to our second point. Second point being John's emphasis on a physical Jesus. John's emphasis on a physical Jesus. John states, God incarnate heard, seen, looked upon, touched. Like many other heresies, a truth about the nature of Jesus or his word is twisted. A half-truth is told. A teaching is put forth that sounds plausible if not examined by the word of God. That's how error spreads. Half-truths, we call them whole lies. But there's some level of believability, there's some level of logic, at least for fallen human beings, to, to gravitate towards. This is their thinking. Because every single person that had ever walked the earth was both a physical person and a sinner. They're right so far, right? The Gnostics concluded and taught that Jesus was God and therefore couldn't have a physical body. But John emphatically states, in the repetition that we just saw, uh, this apostle heard Jesus teach with his ears. He audibly heard Jesus teach. We saw with our eyes, he beheld, he leaned against Christ's breast at the, at the Lord's Supper, at the Last Supper. And just in case you may think that you could look and you could see and you could hear a non-physical Jesus, that was docetism, John leaves no question about the matter by stating what? We have touched with our own hands. John knows that there is something about physically touching Jesus that carried a convincing dose of reality. John was there again with Thomas, and he writes about it in his gospel, the Gospel of John. Uh, you can turn with me if you'd like. This will be the last passage I'll ask you to turn to, John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 24. says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. 
So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hand the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, that's the touching right there, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us, brethren. If God has opened the glories of Jesus Christ that you have never touched with your own hands and you are believing, the Lord says you are blessed. The Gnostics did not see and did not believe. John, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, contrasts his apostolic personal experience with Jesus Christ against the testimony of the Gnostics who never saw Jesus. Now, we're rightfully weary of people when they have some sort of personal anecdote, personal experience, and they want to tell you about what God is really like through some vision that they've had now. We, we believe that that's an error. We reject that because we understand that the perfect, complete, final word of God, God's entire testimony and revelation to mankind has been complete. And there's nothing left to say outside of his scriptures. If something is said that's in addition to the scriptures and it agrees with the scriptures, we have no need of that special word, right? Because we have the scriptures. If something is said and it's not in the scriptures or it contradicts the scriptures, that means either the word of God is incomplete or that it's an error according to that logic. We have the complete revelation. At this time, the New Testament was still being written. And God in his perfect wisdom chose to take 12 uh, personal life experiences and to disseminate the truth given once for all time, calling some of them and others to physically write the scriptures down with personal. To be an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness to Jesus Christ. So John, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, contrasts his apostolic personal experience with Jesus against the testimony of the Gnostics who never saw Jesus. This is an eyewitness testimony versus hearsay. This is an eyewitness testimony against fanciful supposition, lofty-sounding teaching, man's logic, contrast against an eyewitness to Jesus Christ, an apostle of the New Testament church. So, brothers and sisters, on that, on that point, I would say, we need to stop letting people influence our understanding of Christianity who themselves deny the truth of God. That is prevalent. In, in the, it's not just in the American church, not just in the Western church. It seems to be more and more prevalent inside of con, uh, theologically conservative Reformed churches that somehow people that are at enmity with God as we once were can somehow teach us something about our Lord and Savior. It's impossible because the Word tells us that unless they are regenerate, they are at 
and enmity with God through wicked works continually. I'm reminded of a, uh, an intro. I used to listen to the podcast, uh, Wretched Radio, many years ago before it had a TV show and all that. And there was bumper uh, music, bumper intro they play all the time where uh, Oprah Winfrey would be quoted saying, uh, my, well, my Jesus would never do this or my Jesus would never do that. She was teaching people about Jesus. And, and the truth of the matter is uh, she was right. Her Jesus would never do these biblical things because her Jesus was a figment of her imagination. There's nothing, nothing that a lost and dying world can teach us about our God. Again, like many other false teachings, those who suppose such errors see themselves as defending the true nature of God. So a good demonstration of this, hear me, I don't don't want to be misunderstood. If we took an in-house debate inside of Christianity, this is not truth versus, or Christians versus unchristians, in-house debate, if we looked at those who would have a more Arminian understanding of conversion, that would see that man is the one who kind of pulls the lever on salvation. They do so because they think they're defending the character and nature of God, right? They think that, well, if God is the one who elects, if God is the one who starts regeneration, if God is the one who brings salvation, that somehow would make him unfair. So in a desire to defend God, they have what we would conclude to be unbiblical teaching on secondary issues. However, this is not a secondary issue. These Gnostics, these false teachers, seek to defend a God of their own imagination who, strangely enough, looks in some ways, looks similar to the God of Scripture. He has some of the same characteristics, but it is not the God of Scripture. This God... This God they're trying to defend is a God that could not be flesh. But that's in contrast to the God of Scripture, the true God, who John wants us to understand, took on flesh. We can't completely grasp or understand the reality of what that means. How does that work? How does the infinite God become a man? I can't give you the details, but I can say the Word of God says it's true, and it's vital to understand that if you are a believer. Like Nadab and Abihu, trying to worship God with a strange fire. These strange doctrines and those who teach them will meet an even greater consuming fire, the Lord God Almighty. But I ask you, why did Jesus have to be fully God and fully man? Why did God have to be fully man? That's definitely the point that John wants us to get from his, the, the, the opening verses of his epistle. Why? The Westminster, Longer Catechism, question 39 says, Why was it requisite that the mediator should be a man? Answer? I wrote it down. I didn't know it either. Things have changed, brethren. These were questions for kids at one time. It was requisite that the mediator should be a man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness under the throne of grace. Some of the proofs 
for that answer. Wonderful answer. Hebrews 2, 16. It's been a little while since Kurt was there. Maybe you'll remember when he went through this. For verily, he took not on him the nature of angels. Right? This seems almost logical to us that if God was going to take on a manifestation, that it would be an angel, right? Hebrews 2 says no, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Galatians 4.4 But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman made under the law. Hebrews 4.15 For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched. Right? There's that physical aspect again. Not, Not be touched with the feelings of our infirmities but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. It was necessary that the one who stood in our law place to take the wrath of God for our sins be fully God and fully man. That is the truth that John is defending. You could say that Satan would be fine. He'd be happy with the world believing Uh, Jesus is God or man, as long as he's not both fully God and man. Enough error there to make it a different God. It gets at the very heart and nature. I know many of you have had, uh, I've had uh, Jehovah's Witnesses come to our door. Very kind, very nice. I enjoy uh, speaking with them often. And there's many things I want to turn to in the scriptures that we would probably agree to. But when we get to the actual essence and nature of who Jesus was, the Messiah. They deviate. Almost all of the New Testament heresies have to do with the nature of Jesus Christ himself or his word, and Jesus Christ is the living word. That is where the attack always is. John wants us to know, brethren, Jesus Christ, before we get into the rest of the book, it's paramount. We have a biblical understanding of the God-man Jesus Christ. That And the emphasis here, I know we all agree with that, the emphasis here is on the fact that he really was a man. He really was fully man. We, it's, it's so easy for us to run intellectually to the fact that he was the fullness of deity with us. Still true, 100% true. In fact, I remember hearing R.C. Sproul correct John MacArthur one time when John MacArthur was referring to the nature of Christ as being 100% God and 100% man. And he said, fully, fully. It's something different beyond what we can grasp uh, totally. Fully God. And the point here John's making is fully man. That brings us to our third point. Complete joy and fellowship with Christ. It is said that there is no orthodoxy without orthopraxy. That is, proper theology, orthodoxy, right thinking, produces proper living, orthopraxy, right practice, right? So you can say that you, know, you hold to whatever theological tenets you do, and they've been championed, and they're historic, and they're biblical, but if it doesn't produce a certain way of living, um, that is not what the Scriptures refer to as belief. It's an intellectual assent. It is a file cabinet theology. 
But there's no uh, orthodoxy without orthopraxy. We normally hear this in regards to Christians who are falling into sin. It it applies there. Um, That if you say you believe these things and yet you are continually falling into the same sin month, year, in and out, we would say that you are not believing. But I bring it up here in regards to the omission of joy in a Christian's life, okay? So, if you are not a Christian who has access to sincere, true, spirit-wrought, fulfilled joy in your life, if that is omitted from your life, then there is wrong thinking in your Christian walk. And the point from the text here is there's wrong thinking likely in your understanding of the personhood of Jesus Christ, how the mediator works into the Christian walk. There is an intrinsic link between a Christian's fellowship with the Lord and their personal, daily, lived-out demeanor. A direct link between how you relate to the world on a, on a daily basis. We all, we all suffer from lack of sleep. We all get hangry sometimes. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what is your baseline? What is your baseline demeanor? If it is not fulfilled joy, the Scriptures aren't telling us to be more joyful. They're saying come back to a sincere communion with your God. I remember hearing a, a guest preacher at a church that we remember uh, of years ago uh, talk about grouchy Christians that he would meet. Um, back when the Lord first saved me, we were in a fundamentalist church, and the, the joke was uh, independent, uh, fundamental, temperamental Baptist. Uh, and it was a stereotype, and it was a well-deserved stereotype. But he would ask people. He was... He, they have a, uh, what they would call an evangelist that wouldn't quite line up with the scriptures as an evangelist, but a traveling preacher going to a different church. And he was telling the story of how he would, uh, he would meet grouchy Christians and he'd ask them if they were saved. And when they said yes, he asked them if their face knew about it. Yeah. It, it was a valid critique. It really was. Does your face know you're saved? Now, they got a laugh uh, when it was said, and it was said lightheartedly. But, but there's a life-altering truth about this, brothers and sisters. Uh, John the Apostle, Apostle, who history records that he survived being dipped in boiling oil. Right? That's a historical account. But now the Scriptures record that he's living in exile. It's concerned with his, I'm quoting him in, in the text we're not getting to today, little children. He's writing to what he calls his little children in the faith. He's concerned with joy being complete. Because his fellowship with God has produced complete joy in his life. And I I illustrate just a couple of things from his path, right? Every other one of the apostles met with a martyr's death. He himself uh, met with great physical hardship because of his alignment and apostleship for Jesus Christ. He's writing about joy. He's concerned with these young ones, these little ones, and their joy being full in fellowship with Christ. I want to be clear that I'm not misunderstood. The point isn't joy. The point is fellowship with Christ. But an evidence that there is a problem is the lack of joy. So that's why he focuses on this. Is there a lack of joy? Well, then there's a problem with your relationship to God. And his specific application is the person. 
of Jesus Christ. Now I labor the point here. John's emphasis is for the church of Jesus Christ to rightly grasp and understand the perfect physical humanity of Jesus Christ because any aberrant view of Christ's humanity will be at best or will at best produce an incomplete joy in the Christian life. Any misunderstanding of Jesus' humanity will at best produce an incomplete joy in the Christian life because it'll produce hindered fellowship with the Father. And at worst, it will leave a person on the broad path that leads to destruction. And that is the false teachers, right? There's, again, there's not understanding, and then there's false teaching. A quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Joy is something very deep and profound. Something that affects the whole and entire personality. In other words, it comes to this. There is only one thing that can give true joy, and that is the contemplation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He satisfies my mind. He satisfies my emotion and every desire. It's from life in Christ. Do you think like that? Do you think that the fellowship that you have or are lacking to have with your God can be remedied by deep meditation on the personhood of Jesus Christ and what He means to you personally as your propitiation, as your payment, as the one who has bore your sin, received the wrath of the Father, the just penalty that was on your head, as a man. There's plenty we can look to as to the deity of Christ. I'm not leaving that out. But here, the idea that as a man, the God of heaven, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh for you. That will produce joy. And if it doesn't, contemplate the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I have some applications for you. Okay. Three applications. How to walk in the light. We heard a wonderful message last week on the deadly dangers of sexual sin. I ask you today, brethren, everybody, if I could direct it more at the men, how are you doing? Last week, were you uncomfortable as you were exhorted to put away your lust and pornography? Did you leave under conviction, determined to not stumble in this area, only to find yourself here a week later without joy because like a dog, you've returned to the vomit. I exhort you to look unto Jesus Christ, the God-man. He experienced every temptation and was victorious. Lust had not one single victory ever in his life, In that perfect life, the perfect keeping of the law, 
went to the cross to be crushed in your place. Look to the perfect Son of God, flee from your sin, and return to fellowship with God and experience the fullness of joy. How you doing? Second application. Are you anxious or worried? Are you anxious or worried? Do the uncertainties of employment based on COVID exemptions or vaccine mandates destroy your joy in Christ? Does the worry of tomorrow inhibit that strong fellowship and communion with your God? Look to the perfect Son of God, who in the Garden of Gethsemane sweat drops of blood and was near death at the thought of the wrath of the Father that was about to be poured out on him. Look to Jesus, who was in anguish over the break in fellowship with the Father for the first and only time in all of eternity. That was about to happen. Jesus, the God-man, experienced a break in fellowship with God that you may have fellowship with God and that your joy may be complete. It's not to diminish legitimate planning and concerns as your future is uncertain. There are opportunities for anxiety and worry. But if the God-man Jesus Christ in the garden sweat drops of blood over thinking about what was to happen, but was victorious, saying, not my will, but thine, look to that God-man, your Savior, and your joy will be full. Third application. Are you lonely? Are you lonely? Has the lack or the loss of a spouse left you in a perpetual state of sadness? Do you live feeling that your joy is dependent on another human relationship? Or maybe God has given you a spouse and blessed your home with children. If there's a pervasive loneliness that permeates your day-to-day life, Brethren, I don't want to diminish the difficulties and the hardships that accompany human relations. Every human relation is with another sinner, two sinners. God himself said, it was not good that man should be alone. My point is that there's only one source, one relationship that produces complete joy. That is your relationship to God. Look unto the God-man, Jesus Christ, who experienced a darker loneliness on the cross than any of us could bear and was victorious. That your joy may be full. And lastly, if you're here today and outside of Christ, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, it is impossible, impossible for your joy to be full. In fact, this message itself and every other one you hear delivered faithfully from the Word of God will do little more than to add to your torment in hell for all eternity. You too must look unto Christ, but not first for the benefits that come with being a Christian. Look unto Christ, your Creator, and judge as the only means by which you will escape the just penalty you deserve. 
Look unto the God-man, Jesus Christ, on the cross as your sin substitute. Repent and place your faith in Him that you may live and for the first time after that in your life, your joy may be complete. Our Lord and our God, oh Father, we thank You for Christ. Every aspect of this life impossible to bring joy, honor, or glory to You apart from Christ Himself, His His death on the cross, His sacrifice on our behalf, Lord. Thank You for Your Spirit that testifies of this truth, Father. I pray today for my brothers and sisters, Lord. Help us to understand that our joy in Christ would be full, that our fellowship with our Savior would be sincere and real and produce an abiding joy, an abiding joy that's it's not based upon what we see with our eyes, but it's based upon faith in the rock of our salvation, Lord. Thank you for your word. We praise you, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.